0: I have a test, a a social science kind of test for you. See how this goes. Two kids in a room, one lollipop. All else being equal, who gets it? Here's another one. Going to play freeze tag, a bunch of kids. All else being equal, who is it first? Right, one more. And a family, a bunch of kids. Someone's got to take a bath this week. Who will it be? <laughs> now, these are, uh, in this social experiment, uh, in order to kind of make it through, we have over time developed, it comes from very ancient times, um, a way of reconciling these issues. And it's known there's really no English translation for it. Um, this is the Proto-Indo-European root of the phrase. It's called "ini, mini, miny, mo." Is what we use. It's equivalent to a childhood coin flip. It's kind of a way of getting a random answer or having random selection, some kind of arbitrariness in the system when you're trying to kind of make it fair and an all-else-being-equal environment where there's uh, some decision has to be made. We use The ancient practice of eeny, meeny, miny, Mo. The problem is, it is not arbitrary. Not arbitrary at all. It's fixed. I don't know if you knew that. Eeny, meeny, miny, Mo is fixed. It is not a random selector. The whole thing is rigged. It's a simple pattern that we use. And if we can understand it, we can use it to our advantage. Children, if you're here, you could control all of the power of elementary school with what I'm about to teach you. It's a simple pattern. Let's for example. There's in this room there's one lollipop. It's me or it's y'all. Who gets it? Let's see. Eeny meeny miny moe, catch a tiger by his toe, if he hollers let him go, eeny meeny miny moe. You see it's cuz I know the system. I know the system. One of us has to take a bath this week. Me or you? Well, let's see. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe. Catch a tiger by his toe. If he hollers, let him go. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe. You got to bathe. You see, I've cracked it. I've cracked it. If you are a second grader, you could walk around with a playbook. Like, you know, depending on how many people. It's like four people, and we're doing potatoes. You could be like one guy to the left. And you could all, well, you could rig it all. You know, one potato, two potatoes. They're all variations on the same Proto-Indo-European root of eenie that that's not arbitrary. That's what I'm trying to say. There's a pattern to it, and it's simply understanding the pattern. But the reason it works, the reason that people don't feel like there's unfairness when they're being eny meenied is because nobody... The people doing it don't know the pattern, or it's happening too quickly that the pattern passes them by. They can't take advantage of the pattern. It's beyond them. It's above them. It's happening, and it feels to them random. There's certain fairness there, but just because they don't know doesn't mean it doesn't exist. There certainly is a pattern. Well, today we're going to deal with that from a scriptural perspective. We're going to deal with a situation in which God has made a choice or is making a choice, and this happens in, throughout life, but in, particularly in the narrative, God's making a choice between one person and another, all things being equal. He's making a choice. We don't know why or how this choice is being made. And the question is, is God being arbitrary? Because we can't kind of find a reason. We can't say, well, this is the reason God's doing it, not this reason. So is God being arbitrary? Is he choosing kind of in an eeny-meeny kind of way? or Or... What's going on? Or how do we understand that? Because certainly, it happens in our own lives. Just about everybody here has found themselves wondering to the Lord whether or not you're a Christian or not. In fact, probably if you don't consider yourself Christian, you ask this even more. The why me? Kind of the the heavenly directed why me to the all-powerful force that owes us an answer. Why me? Why is this happening to me? Why is this not happening to me? Why him? Why does it get to happen to him? Why can't I? When? Why on this day of all days does that happen? Have you ever noticed it all bad happens on the same day? Why is that? We kind of allow, these are, I don't know if they count as prayers. They should, but at any rate, they float up to the Lord. And at their most, you know, humble, it's just a desire to understand the Lord. And there's a desire to understand why. That's good. But there's an arrogant edge to it that says, if I can't figure out the reason, then God's letting me down. Or maybe he's arbitrary. Maybe you just got mowed that day. You know, eeny, meeny, miny, mow. The rain's going to fall on you today. Is that how it works? So we're going to we're kind of examine that. We're going to examine it from uh, Genesis chapter 25, so you can turn there. If you're using one of our Bibles, I think it's like page 17 or something. And we're picking up in verse 19 this morning. Now, this is a big text. Um, I mean big in the sense of an, of like historically important. In other words, this story that we're tapping on today, and we're not going to finish it today, but we're touching on This story is referenced specifically in various places in Scripture um, to do certain things uh, to prove or to demonstrate or to teach certain kinds of principles. And those principles vary. So the story is being used in different ways is what I'm trying to say. In Malachi, the prophet uses it. And that's actually where we get a famous quotation, a famous verse, for Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. It derives not Genesis, but Malachi. Romans uses it. Hebrews uses it. Today what I'd like to do is preach from Genesis. So, to those of you who don't know the story, um, truly, ignorance is bliss this morning. To those of you who do know all of the other places where the story surfaces and the other arguments, some of which are very difficult arguments, very challenging arguments, I'm going to say, I'm not preaching in Romans today, and I'm not preaching in Hebrews today. I'm preaching in Genesis today, and I'm going to try to make that the centerpiece of, of um, the scriptures this morning. All that's saying is we're going to try to, uh, we're certainly going to allow the rest of scripture to inform us as to uh, how God's counsel works. Whew. Okay. Well, we're picking up in, at verse 19. In case you didn't know, this is just kind of FYI. We ended last Sunday at the end of chapter 24. Since then, Abraham got remarried. I don't know if you ever knew that. Abraham gets another wife and has kids, sons, in fact. Um, It's kind of a nice tidbit in chapter 25. Then he passes away, he's buried, and then there's this account of Ishmael, his eldest son's uh, kind of lineage that comes out. And then it picks up in verse 19 with the account of Isaac. So what I'd like to do is I'll read uh, probably 19 to 21, and we'll talk a little bit, and then we'll keep reading. So, 19, this is the account of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, from Padan Aram, and sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife, became Rebekah, became pregnant. Now, there's a few things I just want to Note in passing here. First of all, verse 19 says, this is the account of Abraham's son Isaac. Probably, if you have a Bible with titles right above it, does it say that? Does it say Isaac? No, it probably says Jacob and Esau. And I want to caution. I want to caution us or encourage us to read and examine this story uh, with Isaac in mind. To tell ourselves, this is the story of Isaac. Because, invariably... We pull this story, we extract it from the scriptures, the Jacob and Esau story, and we extract the other Jacob and Esau story from scripture, and we kind of set them aside, and we assume this is all about Jacob, and this is all about Esau, and I'm here to say that the first verse in in this entire kind of epic saga is, this is the story of Isaac. And I think think, um, this may be one of those things that uh, doesn't, take root today, but for those of you who are going to continue to read in Genesis or study this on your own or wrestle with what's being said here, I think that um, there's a richness and a fullness that comes from keeping Isaac on the stage in your mind. So I hope you do that. Secondly, it says this, it says that um, Rebecca was barren, could have no children, and that Isaac prayed to the Lord and the Lord answered. So first of all, Rebecca is barren. It turns out she's barren for 20 years, um, that they have children when, uh, when Isaac is 60, and he's married at 40. So for 20 years, she's barren. And the scriptures say that Isaac seeks the Lord, he prays to the Lord, the Lord hears Isaac, and he blesses them and gives them children. And I, and I want to put this up front also, because uh, over the next couple of weeks, Isaac's going to get beat up a little bit. Uh, he, he makes a lot of mistakes. Uh, but he's spiritual, and I don't want us to forget that. Um, that Christians, godly people, make ungodly mistakes all the time, and and there's going to be times when you're going to want to string him up, or he's just going to seem like a buffoon. And I, I want to say from the very beginning that 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 he's here and he's seeking the Lord. Right? There's a challenge in his life. His wife is barren, and he goes to the Lord, and the Lord hears him. So there's some kind of spiritual relationship there. And I, I'm telling you this because I have to keep telling myself, cut the guy a break. You know, That's kind of my, my attitude as I work through the life of Isaac. So, let's, uh, let's continue here. So the Lord answers Rebecca uh, with, with children, and then listen to 22. Are you ready? The babies jostle each other within her. And she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. Now the Hebrew there, uh, for jostling, the real idea in the Hebrew is the babies smashed and mashed and crushed each other. That's kind of the, the mood of the words. It's, it's, it's very, it's, it's worse than jostle, is all I'm trying to say. It's like super jostling. It's smashing and it's mashing. And likewise, um, here when you read, why is this happening to me? The mood of the Hebrew is more like, woe is me, I am undone. It's much more like, why me? It's much more kind of swoonish is, the, is kind of what's happening here. This is more severe. What happens is she's barren. Isaac prays to the Lord. The Lord answers her with children. And it's so unbelievably painful that she's wondering, well, is this even worth it? That's the kind of mood of the text. And then we arrive at this, this prophecy or this I mean in an ancient way you'd think of it as an oracle not in a bad sense but in a just a definitional sense but this is what the, is spoken over her the Lord says this two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you will be separated One people will be stronger than the other people, and the older will serve the younger. Now, we'll talk about the actual prophecy in a second. What I do think is interesting is the wrestling that's the smashing and the crushing that's happening in her stomach, like in utero, is in itself almost prophetic of the prophecy. Do you see how the two match up? That there's, there's a cooperation here, that there is, there is already inside of her a wrestling and a competition and a rivalry and a contention for who's going to be in charge. I'm not saying consciously, I'm saying that if you were, if, if you were a woman who has been barren for 20 years, who, Lord, whose husband comes before the Lord and the Lord blesses you and these things start to happen to you, these are the ways you would see them. An early church father wrote this. I, I liked it so much. I'm telling you. This is what he said. He said, While they were still in the womb, they showed animosity before there was animation. That was just good. Sometimes those guys are the best. But this it says this oracle's given to Rebecca. And in, in the oracle, let's just talk about the, the, what's being said. The, the, the prophecy. It says there's two nations. Two distinct nations that are going to be separated. Now, let's think about this. One woman is giving birth to two children, and they're going to be distinctly different nations. In other words, they are not beneath the same promise. As contrasted by it, just think of the contrast here. That Jacob, Jacob marries Rachel and Leah like a month from now. Uh, in our time. He marries Rachel and Leah, and he has children through four women, Rachel, Leah, and their two maidservants. So he ultimately has 12 sons and one daughter, and they are all considered. So four women bear 12, 13 total children, and they're all roughly considered, all the boys receive the inheritance of the nation of God. It's not 12 nations, It's 12 tribes in one nation, right? The nation of Israel. And in fact, they have have continual descendants on down and on down and on down and on down. And they're considered to be part of the same nation. The nation of Israel. So here, this is very, not unusual, but it's certainly distinctly different from what's happening there. What the prophecy is saying is, is in the womb of Rebekah are two children. One of them is in the promise. One of them is not. One of them, there's two distinctly different nations that says they will be separated. They'll go apart. And it adds to that, it says, in an odd twist of events, it's the younger one that will receive the blessing or the power or the honor over the elder one, which is countercultural for sure. That's what's being said here. Now, in the long term, if you unraveled this prophecy and said, did it in fact come true... Um, Certainly in the long term, we see this. What ends up happening is two sons are born, Jacob and Esau. Jacob becomes the nation of Israel. Esau becomes the nation of Edom. And they do, in fact, become two separate nations. And they do, in fact, uh, contest with one another. And by and large, when Israel is righteous, when the Israeli people are righteous, the Hebrew people, they subject Edom. In fact, at the, at the captivity and the sinning in the Babylon, at the very end of kind of the, the Hebrew kingdom, the Edomites are seen like celebrating when the, when the Hebrews go into captivity because they've been into subjection for so long. And then the Edomites get utterly destroyed. So in a long term sense this prophecy has certainly played itself out faithfully but this is you know Rebecca's not concerned about long term she's concerned about her boys and in a short term it's got to has to play itself out as well and so and so let's let's see what let's see what happens let's see how it unrolls when the time came for her to give birth there were twin boys in her womb the first came out the first two came out was red and his whole body was like a hairy garment so they named him Esau which kind of sounds in the Hebrew like hairy that's, that's the goal. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. heels. So they, so he was named Jacob, which in the Hebrew roughly means like to grab grasps at the heel. Right? That's working out. Yeah. Um so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. Now, now so you have these, these two boys. Now notice they're twins, but they're fraternal twins. You see the different. The separate nation idea that's even forming right now. Those twins, but they have—they're nothing alike. One is—is is, uh, it says is somewhat hairy, and it also in your scriptures probably says red, it uses the color red. The—the the word there is like earth tone, is earthy, is uh, rudy. If you ever read in Genesis or First Samuel when they describe the appearance of David, they say he's a handsome guy with a rudy complexion. Same word. He's Edom. He's rudy. And that word Edom is like uh, the Hebrew word Adam, right? It's not a big jump. Same root, and Adam means earth. Okay, so so there's this connectivity between Esau. Harry is also kind of earthy. He's very uh, he's kind of beasty, and he's kind of earthy. He's I mean, just put this in your mind. He's got an earthy nature about him. He's he's uh, he's earthy. I don't know what else to say. He's, earthy. Whereas whereas uh, it's going to say this about uh, it says about Jacob as he grabs onto the heel. So with Jacob there's this idea that from the very beginning, from the very beginning in utero there's this infantile sense of competition. On the way out he's fighting to be first. Now to some of you, you may be thinking, yeah, it's birth. Well, I got to say, if you were barren for 20 years, and you prayed to God, and God gave you twin sons, and then it hurt really bad, and so you went and you sought after the Lord, and the Lord actually spoke to you. Think of this. Has any of this happened to you? The Lord spoke back to you and said, in your womb are two children, and I'm going to separate them. And the one who normally gets the promise is not getting it. But the younger is going to rule over the elder. Wouldn't you notice if on the way out, the younger was holding the heel of the older? Wouldn't you notice everything? I mean, don't, you, don't we notice all? Birth is so intense in the first place, we notice all these things. But certainly, all of this seems to, to, to be building. And that's why Scripture is giving it to us, is, is to kind of make some sense out of all of it. Now, Custom. Let's talk about the customs real quick. Customs, customarily, in this ancient time, the oldest child would receive the primary blessing. That's that's customarily the case. And so if things are going to be dictated by custom, Esau should have it made. He should have it made. This continues. It continues up until today in many nations. But even in Mosaic law, the oldest child received a double portion. It was kind of a way of holding on to the inheritance down the line. God is going countercultural here. He's doing something that's counterintuitive. He's doing something that's unpredictable, and he's kind of flipping the tables on this. And so, I, I want to ask you this question: You don't have to be a parent to answer this. You can just imagine if you were this parent, this set of parents, who prayed to the Lord to receive this child after twenty years of barrenness and who knows from your own life account, your own namesake is laughter because of the joy that happened at your birth after a great period of barrenness, which God blessed. So there's no doubt in their minds that God has given them this child. So imagine that. Imagine you're in a situation where there's absolutely no doubt in your mind that it was by the sovereign, gracious hand of God that you're receiving these children, and that there's this great pain during the pregnancy, and that God explains that as saying there's two separate children, and I'm going to give the blessing to the older and not the younger. So, for the next months, waiting for the birth and, and the early infant years, I just want to, you to ask and think how would you process that? You have two boys. How? You have, you have two boys. And you know that God gave them to you, and you know that God is going to bless the younger over the elder. Even though it's countercultural, it's counterintuitive. You have two boys, and you know that one of them is in the promise, and the other one is his own nation. Just how would you wrestle with that? twenty seven. The boys grew up. Remember, this is an account of Isaac. The boys grew up. And Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was a quiet man. Now, I need to stop there. Quiet man. Terrible scholarship says that means he's a mama's boy. That's not right. He's not a mama's boy. Quiet man... It, If you've seen John Wayne, that's like quiet man, right? Quiet man, quiet in this sense is blameless. That's the way to understand that. Job was a quiet man. Um, Someone who, who does what they're told, does what they're supposed to. They live a quiet life. That's what quiet man is in here. Almost every single time it shows up in the Hebrew text, that's what it's trying to reflect is a certain kind of blamelessness. It's not saying that Jacob is without sin. It's not saying that he's always righteous. I mean, we are heading towards the epic family disaster of all time. I mean, it's, it's Jerry Springer Live for like the next two months in Genesis of just warpness and messed upness. And Jacob's going to be a part of that. And Esau's going to, I mean, everybody, everybody's to blame. I'm simply saying his general demeanor is one of kind of a, that's what he's supposed to do. He thinks about the right things and he does the right things. Most of you, in this kind of, our kind of people, you're quiet. You're quiet. You're not rebels. Versus his brother, who does what? He roams the open country. Yeah, so so Jacob is a quiet man, he says, who lives among the tents. That does not mean that he, like, knits with the women in the tents. He's a mama's boy. That is not it. That's not it. So purge that from your mind. What it's saying is is his life is concerned with the issues of the camp. Somebody's got to milk the cow. That's the kind of person that Jacob is. Jacob's the kind of person who would turn off the light switch. Because where's Esau? He doesn't want to have anything to do with the estate. Like, he wants to be in the open country. He wants to be free. He wants to roam. He wants to hunt game. He wants to do these things. If you take these, if you take these two ideas, if you kind of caricature Jacob and Esau this way, it will serve you well as you try to understand them throughout the text. So I'm, I'm, what I'm saying to you is informed by the rest of the story, which you may not have already read, but I'm saying these are the kinds of people that the Bible unfolds them to be. Esau... Esau's open country. There are, you know these people, people who would rather be on the move. They, they don't want to be bound down. The idea of, of being burdened with having to care for the promise seems suffocating to them. That's Esau. Jacob? There's work to do. There's flocks and cur, herds and cattle. Somebody's got to pay the phone bill. That's, that's kind of... Whew, we're moving. That's quiet, man. All right, so... Jacob was a quiet man staying among the tents. Now listen to this. Remember your question? Your parents, you have these children, you know this prophecy, how would you raise them? All right, Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau. But Rebekah loved Jacob. God has spoken, God has given you these children. He's spoken and saying, this one not that one and isaac's favorite child is esau because he likes wild game really let's talk about parental favoritism for a second i'm not it's bad don't do it i'm not going to I'm not going to preach it at you. I mean, duh, don't do it. But what I what I want you to note is how destructive... I'm just saying, I'm saying, this is the account. I'm just going to quote to you Genesis 25:19. This is the account of Isaac, son of Abraham. And I'm, I'm, down here, you get to a place where you have these two sons. You've got this big problem. I mean, any set of loving parents would say... If we're going to go countercultural with our children, if we're going to do something where the world would go, what? Why does he get that? And, what? and if God's already spoken this, how careful do you think you'd be in the raising of these children? Do you think you would at all try to do things that would, that would try to kind of already push the ball in the wrong direction? Give it one child who, who's not the child of the promise the expectation of favoritism. And yet it happens, and on what basis does it happen? Because he likes wild Game. Now, I'm sure there's better reasons than that. I mean, I'm sure there's other reasons for that. I think the Bible wants you to know how silly this is. Like, really? Wild game. (sighs) Now, certainly God has tampered in this story. Um, it's his right to tamper, but he's, he's tampered. He's moved pieces around in ways that they're not often arranged. Um, you might even think unprecedented at this time in ancient life. He's, he's, he's taken the younger son and he's putting him above the older, and, and these things unfold. This is how it happens. So, again, it's informed by what's going to happen, but he's done these things, and it's in the midst of all this that these parents are, are kind of trying to raise their sons And we might find ourselves asking why. So why does God do this in the first place? Why would he kind of reverse the fortunes of the two boys? Why would he do all of this? And i got to say, I I have my ideas, but for today, for the record, I'm going to say I don't know why. The Bible makes it clear in various other places in Scripture that it has nothing to do with the righteousness of Jacob and the unrighteousness of Esau. It says in, in Hebrews and it says in Romans, essentially to the fact of it has nothing to do with what they've done. He says God's selection of one over the other occurred while they were in the womb, yet guilty of no wrongdoing. So it doesn't, we can't say that God chose Jacob because Jacob's better. The Bible's saying don't say that. So why did he do it? Why does God select Jacob over Esau? He won't tell us. He doesn't tell us. We might say it feels unfair. We might even think that God has kind of gone eeny, meeny, miny, mo in this situation. But it is not the first time, and it's certainly not the first time in this story. Why don't we back up a little bit and say, why does God select Abraham? Of all the people, of all the people in the world, why would you tell your redemptive story through Abraham? I mean, for God to select Abraham means he deselected everybody else. We don't know why that happened. I don't know why that happened. Why does God select David, the youngest of eight brothers? I don't know why that happens. Why does God select Joseph and Mary to be the, the people that raise his son into adulthood. I don't know these things. There, and There's not sufficient evidence in Scripture on any of these accounts to, to find a perfectly good reason. Joseph's a decent man, it sounds like. There's plenty of decent men around. There's plenty of decent people around. That's not a good enough reason to, to kind of build a whole theology about it. Why does God choose to tell his story of redemption through the Jewish people? There are certainly better people around from an earthly judgment. There are small, inconsequential people, except for a brief moment. Except for the Davidic-Solomon period. They're like a blip on the map as far as world history goes. And so, so why do they get this great gift of carrying the promise? The Lord says it has nothing to do with what you've done. He tells them that over and over again. He says, do not think that you're here because you deserve to be. In fact, he says, for Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Now when we get encountered with these things, we begin to ask these why questions. And again, they kind of surface to the, to the Lord and they can surface in good ways and in bad ways. Almost as, are we questioning whether God's arbitrary? Is the Lord being arbitrary with the way he does these things? Why does God allow this young, this young fella to die in a car accident? He had his whole future in front of him. Why would God do that? We, we ask these questions. Why does God give this family, all these healthy children, and then this family struggles to have one healthy child or struggles with an unhealthy child? Why does this person get that and this person not get that? Why does this person have such a sharp mind and this person has to struggle to get their mind around things? Why is this person uh, good with people and this person terrible with people? Why does this person struggle with this addiction and this person not struggle with addiction? Why does this person struggle with the way he has, deals with sexual attraction and this one with the way they does not it doesn't, they may have done nothing wrong. These decisions may have been made long before. We don't know why they happened. We don't. Does that make God arbitrary? Just because we don't know why. Is God saying, somebody's getting in a car accident today. Eenie, meeny miney. I would say, we don't know why, but God is not arbitrary. His his reasoning is divine, it's beyond us. Sometimes it unfolds as time goes on and we learn, looking back, why God's done things. But it is not arbitrary. He's a loving God who makes decisions for our our best and our good. It is not arbitrary. In fact, this is the arbitrariness of the story. The, The true arbitrariness of the story is the way that Isaac favors Esau. That to me is the embarrassing arbitrariness of this whole thing. Because of wild game. Have you ever ever gone out to dinner with uh, with children? They don't have to be yours. And in this account, you might be fortunate if they're not. You go out with to dinner, you know, to Pizza Hut or whatever, and you order some drinks, and the server puts the, the, the the Cokes or whatever, milk, if you're health conscious, the milk down at the table. And the kids come back from the bathroom, and they see that one of the milks is a little bit fuller than the other milk. Right? And immediately the hairs go up on the eldest because of his inheritance. And so he starts to push through the ocean of younger punks, and he gets there, and you'll see this they'll grab the cups. And they'll start to examine the little, the margin. They want to make sure they make the best, most accurate choice to, so that the right people get what they deserve. To get, they want to make sure that all of this, they're they're wrapped around the axle about it. They have a fight, it ruins dinner, milk spills, you're frustrated, and there's free refills. That's the most frustrating thing about this. It's free refills. It just doesn't matter. I feel that we get wrapped up with, is God eenie meaning us? Like, why God this? Why God that? We ask all these questions of the Lord about what he's doing, and yet we're not eenie meeny, we're eenie weeny that's what I would say. We're so eenie weeny about the things that God has given us. That like God lays out dinner for us. He gives the glasses. We get all these things. We know what his will is. We know what he wants us to do. He, he gives you a child after 20 years of prayer. He get, they makes them twins. He speaks prophecy over them. And then how do we make the decision at the end? Wild game. God tells you, you ought to forgive those who have sinned against you. And we say, but Lord, do you know what he did? He said this thing about me. It was rude, and it hurt my feelings. What do you think the Lord thinks of that? The Lord's, you're like looking at this glass, and you're, you're scrutinizing. I think what the Lord would say is, do you realize you have any concept of how much I have forgiven you? And yet you're not obeying my will, you're not subjecting yourself to my will because of this tiny, little, eeny, weeny thing? Your cup is overflowing with grace. And yet you're quibbling over this. The Lord says, love your enemies as yourself. And you say, yeah, but God, they they flew an airplane into my buildings. They say things that are so hateful. They have They kill and they murder us with reckless abandon. How can we do this? And I think the Lord would say, if you had ears to hear, do you have any concept of how much you have done to me? You're dealing with, we're scrutinizing. We're not obeying the Lord. We're being radically rebellious against God in some of these cases. Some of us, in some of these cases, are rebelling against the truth of God because of something so immeasurably small in God's eyes... When he says, your cup is running over with grace. I've poured in. It's free refills. And you're sitting here going, but they did this to us. God says, be generous with what you've had. And we're kind of, ah. Ah. What has God given us? We can ruin, we can ruin, or at least put major cogs in the works of what God's trying to do What he's clearly trying to do here, we may not know why, but what he's trying to do here, we can ruin it by just grabbing these eeny-weeny little things and just wrecking the thing. You know, if you want to know what, what, you know, so God sometimes seems arbitrary. He's not, but sometimes he seems that way because we don't understand. We're young and we're doing eeny meeny miny mo thinking it's random. There's a pattern. God's trying to do something. He's unfolding. He knows exactly what's going on. He's in control of the situation. But I will say this. If you want to think into the Lord about what really seems just radically unanswerable, this is it. Why? Why would God send his son to die for us? That, if you have a why question, that's the one that really I cannot find a good answer for. I can't find a fitting, suitable, human kind of answer for it. I can't say, well, I deserve that or you deserve that, or collectively, if we put all of our goodness together, it deserves that. I cannot find a single, good, earthly reason to explain why God would do that. That, to me, seems beyond me. The fact that there's a promise at all, the fact that some child gets some promise of blessing at all, seems like a great gift.